Sparkin' Conversations, a podcast for electricians, hosted by an electrician. The Electrical Association is committed to keeping electricians in the know about the latest developments in the industry. Experts will be on to help answer the tough questions, talk shop, and give tips to help make your jobs work. Welcome back to another podcast production of Sparkin' Conversations from the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. We're hoping that you're taking some time to enjoy the summer that's unfolding before us and getting away and spending some time with neighbors, friends, and especially family. As an electrical contractor, it's a little disheartening to listen to the news lately and hear the bad news about our economy and the gloom and doom that's in the air. It leads to questions like, when is the financial situation ever going to improve or what is we going to do with this crazy interest rate? And will the inflation that we're seeing now ever come back to the year two years ago? These are difficult questions the electrical contractors deals with daily. Nobody has a crystal ball and can give us exact information on what will happen. But to bring us up to speed on such matters, we went to the right place, the bank. That is the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Today, our guest is Mr. Ron Wirtz. Ron is the bank's regional outreach director. He tracks current business conditions with focus on employment and wages, construction, real estate, consumer spending, and tourism. In this role, he networks with business in the bank's six-state region and gives frequent speeches on the economy and conditions. Well, welcome, Ron. Uh, your credentials sound like we have the right man for some tough questions. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your career with the Minneapolis Federal Reserve Bank. Sure, and thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Thanks to all the listeners who are who are listening today. Just to give you a little bit of my background, so I've been at the Fed a little bit more than twenty years. Um, I the first two thirds of my career were as a researcher. I was editor of a publication we had called the Fed Gazette, which was kind of a business and economics journal that really looked at the ninth district economy. And for those that aren't familiar, the, the Federal Reserve has 12 district banks located across the country, one in Minneapolis, and we each have our own territory that we're kind of supposed to be paying attention to. And ours in the ninth district runs roughly Western Wisconsin and the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, all the way over to Montana. So including Minnesota, the Dakotas and Montana. And really what I was doing there is a lot of research on the regional economy talking about kind of issues in a deep way, looking at the at how markets evolved, maybe in concert with policy matters and things like that in that general region. Did that for about 14, 15 years, and now I'm in a different position that is more about tracking current business conditions. And that's, I think, maybe a little bit more relevant for this audience in the sense that when our president, Neil Kashkari, goes into FOMC meetings, when he, where the place where the Fed sets monetary policies, where we raise and lower interest rates and do other things, things. He wants to know on a more granular level, how's the economy doing? Kind of in a real-time sense. This was became really obvious to us, especially when the pandemic hit, that we needed to have a, a much more real-time understanding of conditions. And so what I'm doing is I do a lot of outreach to businesses. I also um, conduct a, a couple of different surveys that are among the largest in the Federal Reserve System, really trying to gauge what businesses are telling us uh, and what they are seeing in the, in the local economy. So when Neil goes into those meetings, he has a little bit fresher idea of what businesses in the Ninth District are actually seeing. So one of the surveys that I do also that I think is relevant 
for this audience is that I do a construction, a specifically construction focused uh, survey. And that also happens to be the largest one in the Federal Reserve System. So yeah, there's probably a lot we can talk about from there, but that it seems to be about a, a good thumbnail in my career. That That's quite a summary. Seriously, that's uh, pretty impressive to understand all that you're into. And I, I was kind of taken by the concept of a fresher idea. What's fresh today may not be fresh tomorrow. It must be a real challenge there. It is. If, if I can just make one note on that, you know, the, the things that we're doing, you know, to try to track real time economy are a little bit more art than science. You know, we gather an awful lot of data. Unfortunately, not all of it's very time sensitive when you look at employment data and GDP data and things like that. That's why we do a lot of the survey work that we do. We feel like, you know, getting input from one business is useful. Getting input from hundreds of businesses at least gives us a better understanding of what's happening in the real time economy. I, I commend you. Well, moving on to another question. I'm curious, Ron, what impact does the Federal Open Market Committee have on the direction of monetary policy of the federal government? For example, interest rates. It has everything to do with interest rates and other monetary policy. So that Federal Open Market Committee is the organization within the Federal Reserve System that decides interest rates and other monetary policies. So if you go back to the Great Recession and the quantitative easing policies that we implemented then, the Federal Open Market Committee is entirely in charge of that. Now, not, without going too much in the weeds, to give you a little background about who's in that meeting, there's the uh, Board of Governors. And all of them always have a vote on monetary policies. Then among the 12 district bank presidents, all of them are in the meeting and they get to have their say in terms of, of giving their opinion, but not all of them have votes. So the New York Fed always has a vote because when we are targeting the Fed funds rate to go up or down to change interest rates, the New York Fed is the one that does all the transactions to help make that happen to influence the market. Okay, so they always have a vote on monetary policies in the FOMC. And then there's a rotating schedule of votes among the other 11 district uh, district presidents. So the short answer to your question is Federal Open Market Committee is all about monetary policy. And that pretty well is Pat. So the next thing, just to touch on, from time to time, we hear about the dual mandate from Congress regarding monetary policy. Uh, can you let our listeners know what the two mandates are and how they affect monetary policy setting? Yeah, that's a great question. I appreciate you asking it because many people aren't really familiar with this. So I think people are familiar with the Federal Reserve System, but what we do and why we do it isn't always as obvious. So Congress, we are a creation of Congress, okay? But we are, um, we are also an independent agency within the government. Congress gave us a dual mandate. And by that, they want us, when we think about monetary policy, they want us to focus on two goals. The first one is stable prices. I think we're likely to talk more about that in this in this podcast, because as we all know, um, it, the inflation is significantly higher than the Fed would like. It's significantly higher than it's been in 40 years. So that's one of the goals from Congress that we are supposed to be paying attention to. And we are trying our darndest right now to get inflation more under control. The second part of that dual mandate is to maximize employment. And that's more of a moving target, I would say. 
So what, how we used to think about maximizing employment is we used to think from our economic models that 5% unemployment was full employment. So then when you got below that, that would likely trigger inflationary effects. Well, we've really seen over the last 10 or 20 years that that isn't the case, that we can go significantly below 5% unemployment before it triggers inflation. So again, before the pandemic, as we saw unemployment going lower and lower, we're continue, we wanted to continue paying attention to inflation. So as long as inflation was low and unemployment continued to go low, we could keep things just as they were. Now we have a lot of kind of very competing um, kinds of dynamics that we have high inflation. We still see employment growth as well, which is good. So now, as your listeners have surely seen, you know, we've we've increased interest rates three times because now we're trying to tackle that inflationary piece, which is so important, I think, to everybody. Okay. We could get very political here, and I certainly, that's not the scope of this presentation at all because we are not a political organization, but I can see where that must be a fine line to walk on to make the decisions you're making without having to play politics. Well, I think the way we approach it is that we let the data tell us what we should be doing. And in that sense, it's very unpolitical. Now, inflation has happened why it has for because of a lot of different dynamics that, frankly, the Fed didn't anticipate up to this point. So if you go back, you know, roughly a year ago, maybe 15 months in the spring of last year when the vaccines were coming around, what you heard is the Fed talking about what it thought was transitory pressures in terms of inflation. We, we were seeing high inflation then, but we thought with the vaccine, we thought we saw we would expect more people going back to work, supply chains kind of starting to repair themselves, and the demand that we saw for goods start to shift more towards services. Just to back up a little bit, one of the reasons inflation started in the first place is because when the pandemic hit, we had the lockdowns everybody started pushing into goods. So everybody was, if we were in our homes, we were online and buying lots of things to make our, our isolation maybe a little bit happier. So we were, we were upgrading our homes in, in many different ways and we were just generally buying lots of goods and we were not purchasing many services. So then what you had is shortages on shelves, which I think everyone remembers and we see them today, and manufacturers not only were trying to restock those shelves, but also meet still high demand. So that's kind of where the inflation came from in the first place. We expected vaccines to really start unwinding some of those problems. And as everyone here knows, vaccine uptakes were less than we expected. We've seen numerous surges in the meantime. And really what that's done, it has impacted our workforces enough that that supply chain problem and the production problem hasn't been able to fix itself yet. So that's one of the reasons why we are trying to work on the demand from, from the interest rate side to try to maybe push down on demand enough so that it comes closer to meeting supply. And then I think we're going to start seeing prices um, uh, kind of flatten out again. That's, that's the expectation and the hope. Boy, some real delicate balances for sure. When comparing residential wiring to commercial and industrial wiring, do you see a financial trend that would favor one over another? Well, I can't speak exactly to the wiring industry. What I can talk about is the overall construction sector, which I think is a reasonably good proxy for, for your industry specifically. And what I see right now, because I do pay attention to construction markets and I do the survey, and generally what I'm seeing is that residential was really hot. 
I think we are seeing some slowing of that. In the commercial area, I'm seeing that office has been slower. Retail has been a little bit better. Industrial has been off the charts and still seems to be, seems to remain strong. Whether or not that continues is hard to say. In terms of the residential space, Multifamily has really been seeing a very nice, a very nice trend overall. It, the most recent data that I'm getting for the first half of this year suggests that multifamily really is continuing to move forward, maybe faster than single family in the sense that the, the way things are penning out for multifamily seems to be better than the individual buyer who is looking potentially to build a single family home, especially when you have the single site costs of an individual home. So we're seeing a little bit of pullback in the uh, single family space. Not, not bad yet though, but I, I would say better strength in the multifamily space. And, but we are seeing overall our last survey that we did in April, respondents gave us a very clear indication that more they were seeing more project cancellations. Now the good news is that many seem to still be quite busy, but they you know the fact that there are more cancellations in this in that space I think probably isn't good news for sure. And more than anything, everybody's still seeing dramatic delays in part because of supply chain problems, in part because of labor supply problems and other things. Generally speaking, you know, if, if I were to tell your, your audience where I see the most strength, I think right now it's probably in the, in the industrial space. I think infrastructure projects are probably in a reasonably good space. We've seen some nice improvement from firms in that space with office probably the weakest area right now. Everybody's working from home. <laughs> that is definitely part of it. Okay. Contractors have seen significant shortages and outlandish price hikes of electrical construction materials. As we watch the economy go from bad to what appears to be worse, do you see anything soon that might change that or have a little bit of a rebound for us? Well, you know, the the one thing that could happen is that demand could just really start to go down significantly. I think we, I think that would cure a lot of problems, but create bigger problems, you know? So what I'm, what we're hoping is that I think if we can ever get control of some of the COVID surges and we can get back to a, a workforce that is a little bit closer to what it might've been pre-pandemic, I think that will help because we'll start to get not only the production side of it closer to normal, we'll get the supply chain back a little bit more back to normal. And, you know, and just a little word on the, on the supply chain stuff, you know, part of this is the fact that prior to the pandemic, we built a really efficient global supply chain. What the pandemic has shown is that this kind of hyper-efficient supply chain is really problematic in a pandemic because it doesn't have any latent capacity that you can tap. So we are really, I think businesses are busy trying to rebuild all of those different networks again, um, either new ones or trying to repair the old ones. And I think until we see both production increase close to capacity again, you know, especially from a workforce standpoint, and we see supply chains go back to normal, I don't know that I see any immediate relief in some of those things where supplies are really uh, in constraint. One note on the labor force side, I think one thing that maybe we don't realize so the Census Bureau does this kind of experimental survey of uh, households, and it's done it since the start of the pandemic. And it asks households, were you out of work this past week? And then when it, and if a person says yes, it says, well, was it due to COVID? You know, either you had it or, or someone in your house had it and you had to deal with it, or was it because of something else? 
basically what we see is that at any one time, four to six percent of the workforce is out of out of work for sickness reasons. Then another share, and that's not related to COVID. When you add in the COVID, you essentially have a doubling or a tripling of the number of people that are either out of work because they have COVID or because they're dealing with someone with it. So you really have a productivity problem there. And I think until we get our hands around that, I don't know exactly how we go back to getting production higher and getting supply chains fixed related to it. Now, I think, again, hopefully we can increase productivity in, in other ways. Hopefully demand maybe um, tempers a little bit. I wouldn't want it to temper too much, but maybe it can temper a little bit also that will take a little of that pressure off. Okay. Well, Ron, here's one that probably looms on a lot of our listeners' minds, and that's the Ukraine war. What impact financially do you see with that ending? I know it's it's on, it's who knows when it'll end. Do you think there will be a significant rebound once that is done, over? Well, I don't want to make predictions as to when it's what happens when it's done, in part because it, the end doesn't we, I don't have any idea when that might happen. I think we all hoped it wouldn't go this far. Um, what I can tell you in terms of how we think about the, the Ukraine conflict and how it impacts the economy is that from an, a direct trade standpoint, neither of those countries are, are very large trade partners. Russia, I think, is somewhere in th around 30th. Ukraine, I don't think, cracks the top 50. So in terms of direct goods exchange, it's not that great. Problem with that conflict is that they have a huge impact on energy and ag markets because they're both big producers of both. And when you talk about energy and ag, that affects everybody everywhere all the time because we all have have mobility needs we all need to go places and we all have to eat so those are really two of the biggest impacts so i think the other thing as it relates to the ukraine war is that businesses and consumers don't like uncertainty and that has introduced an immense amount of additional uncertainty at a time that businesses and consumers are already kind of bombarded with challenges. You know, again, things we've talked about, labor shortages, inflation, higher interest rates, things like that. So that just kind of compounds an already complex problem. Okay. All right. Well, Ron, I tell you, I checked out your website. I do with all my guests, and I was very impressed with what I saw there. I found many documents that are available that explain current financial situations through the eyes of the Federal Reserve Bank. So I was wondering if you'd care to share with us today uh, their URL address and maybe give them a little bit more information on what could be found on the website. I appreciate the opportunity to do so. As you know, the Minneapolis Fed does a lot of research, both on the current economy, but on lots and lots of different parts of the economy, both in the near term, as well as much more kind of theoretical, econometric kinds of research. So our web address is MinneapolisFed.org. And from there, there's a number of other landing pages that you can come to to click kind of in different areas of interest. Uh, we publish a lot of data. We publish a lot of studies. Our president, Neil Kashkari, also has occasional essays that we have on there. So if you're interested in how he's thinking about inflation, he's published a couple of recent essays kind of outlining his thinking on how we went from uh, essentially a fairly dovish opinion on inflation to a very hawkish position on inflation. So if anyone's interested, Interested. There's that and an awful lot more again at MinneapolisFed.org. Well, that's great. Well, Ron, I'd like to thank you for taking time out of what I know is a very busy schedule to share and, and enlighten our 
our audience with information about financial conditions and projections for the Minneapolis area. Are there any closing thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with today? Well, more than anything, as I mentioned, I have a lot of outreach to businesses. And if I've learned anything during the pandemic, it is how impressed I am at how resilient businesses are in this environment. I think we've talked about a lot of challenges today that businesses face. And the fact that we are still seeing growth is amazing to me. And I think that's a, that's a tribute to all your members listening today and you know other folks in the construction sector and other businesses in the broader economy. So I wish uh, listeners luck going forward. Well, you know, from a banker's perspective, that is a ray of hope to to say that. So I, again, really thank you for joining us. And also, I'd like to thank Katie Grahams, our executive producer and sound engineer, Travis Lennox, for their efforts in bringing you another edition of Spark and Conversations. Wherever you're downloading your podcast from, please check again and soon for another presentation of the Electrical Association. I'm Mike Miller, your host. Have an enjoyable day. Spark and Conversations is a production of the Electrical Association. For more information, visit www.electricalassociation.com. Spark and Conversations.